House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You are back in the House of Mystery, and uh, next up we have a writer, um, and this <laughs> sounds exciting. We've got, um, now what do we call this? This is a... Uh, um, Crime fiction, maybe. Um, we, we will talk to her and find out. So uh, the book we're going to be focusing on is The Scorpion Scheme, Death and Danger on the Nile. And uh, who's with us is the author, Melissa Yee. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Alan Dave. So, and I would call it medical thriller. Medical thriller, yeah, because I, I, I saw that on the on the, on the. Vile, and that's why I didn't know what to call it, because um, that's not something I've really come across, um, though it, in a way it should be, because there is a lot of medical-based thrillers out there, right? So that's... It's true. It's, a, it's its own subgenre, but in this case, because Dr. Hoetze is going to Egypt and she's spending the whole time in Cairo, it's not as hospital-based as some of the other books. It's more well, an international thriller. Okay, so it's it's kind of a so, so we kind of call it a thriller, but there is a medical part to it. Um, so if but you bring in Egypt as well, so you've got a little bit of ancient history and and all that in there. So this is a really um, new for me. Um, we haven't really interviewed a lot of people that have done this sort of thing. So this is really interesting. Um, how did you put this all together? Like, where, where does it come from for you? Well, in real life, I'm an emergency doctor, and I always wanted to be a writer, too. You know, like, ever since I was in kindergarten, I thought, I love books. You know, I love to tell stories. I want to do that with the rest of my life. But I was really worried about not being able to Make eat money. and <laughs> yeah, yep. have a roof over my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was yeah. good at school, and I liked helping people, so I thought medicine would be a really fun career, and I would get stories out of it, too. So I went into medicine, and it was totally true. I just underestimated how much energy it would take <laughs> to be a doctor. So, uh, you know, I, I have to short out on sleep sometimes to get it all done. But one of the things that I did get was uh, a travel company reached out to me and asked me if I would write novels in exchange for writing novels for them. Sorry, if I would travel around the world in exchange for writing for books for them. And yeah. I went to Ecuador and the Galapagos first, and then I went to Egypt second. And I said, you know, I, I need to write my own book about Egypt. I just feel like it's calling me. I don't know enough about it and the politics and ancient history and the pharaohs. I've got to do a deep dive into this and bring my main character too. And so that's how I started writing Scorpion's King. Well, that's that's interesting. So I can see the the medical part of it. I mean, you're dealing with it, especially in emergency. Um, what made you choose Egypt? Like, what what about Egypt that that um, makes you want to write a book where it's based? I know it's funny, right? Because I was not one of the people who was really fascinated with Tutankhamun and um, or wanting to dress up like that for Halloween. It wasn't. Um, a big draw to me. But when I went there and I was looking at thousands of years of history, like for example, when I landed shortly after that, we were visiting the Valley of Kings and Queens and I was just walking into people's tombs and looking at the hieroglyphics and thinking, I wish I knew what this was saying. I'm sure it would mean so much if I had any idea. And in fact, in, in those tombs, the, gar the, the guide is not supposed to come with you. I think it's partly because it's somewhat of a narrow passageway and they don't want to have tour groups blocking them. And also, it used to be a huge problem when there are lots of tourists, just the dampness, like the humidity, uh, from people exhaling on the paintings on the wall, basically, were eroding them. So you're supposed to go in, take pictures if you paid for the permit to do so, and leave. But I thought there's a whole other level here that I'm not getting, and I would really like to know more. In fact, I'm sure a lot of your listeners would understand that. You know, like, it'd just be like, you're basically staring at a mystery the entire time, and you wish you could translate it. 
Oh, oh, totally. It's it's such a and it's so complex. There's so many levels, and so many stories about that whole, um, the whole existence of of the Egyptians back then and and what happened in that. So, uh, it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And oh, if I was just going to add, and what I thought was interesting too was just the culture was really different. Like when you became a pharaoh, one of the first things you would do would be to decide your tomb. So, you know, what part of the Book of Dead would you want to have engraved on the walls? Um, you know, how would you want it constructed? Where would it be located? That sort of thing. You would plan for your death immediately, and, you know, it would take up a good part of your life. So it's the opposite of modern-day North America, where the focus is just live, 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 and, you know, when people die, everyone's worried about talking about it and, and feels really kind of t- tiptoes around it. Whereas in Egypt, it was part of your life. And worshiping yeah. your ancestors too, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Uh, things have changed. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought years, things have changed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. The, yeah. It's, it's sort of a different concept. I, so, but to put together a book like this, it must take a lot of time. Like, because you really have to get it right when you're talking about something like you know ancient Egypt, and you're talking about pharaohs you have to make sure that it's within the realm of truth. You know. Yeah, you want it to be as accurate as possible. Yeah, I, I thought it was a challenging on so many levels. So when I went, you know, first of all, my brother said to me, don't go, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I don't actually know the Muslim Brotherhood. Like, I, I knew so little about <laughs> Egypt. It was, <laughs> maybe that made it easier for me to go. But when I started researching modern politics, I was like, you know, I, I didn't have a good idea what happened during Arab Spring. I don't know how uh, they changed presidents from Mubarak to, um, his name is Hosni, to now LCC, you know, and, and what that means for the average person. And I would hear really contradictory things, you know, this person was good, this person was bad, this person was a puppet. And it was just hard to sort that out. And at the same time, I wanted to delve into ancient Egypt, which is what people here are more familiar with, and I wanted to get it right. Um, so when I was listening to, for example, Kara Cooney talking about ancient Egypt, and she said that the closest modern equivalent that she could think of was North Korea, to have such a totalitarian government, you know, with a lot of iconography, basically, um, and absolute power. And I thought no one had ever explained that to me before that, you know, the reason why we have such lasting monuments today is because so much wealth and power went into building that. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I, 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 I think a lot of people don't realize that. Um, and as far as them talking about, you know, this person was good and this one was bad, you can, you can never tell. I think you're doing better going back in time because um, – because all we do know, the facts at the end of the day, are how people lived, you know, what happened to them, um, mm-hmm. their experiences, right? Because that's the only fact we can really know, whether their leaders were good or bad or the people around us, just all sort of, you know, it, it's feeling and opinion. But the fact is, how do people live? And I'm sure they'll say that about today's times and all the things we're doing now in 100 years um, they could say all sorts of things about our leaders. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Right, and and there will be all sorts of stories that come through, but um, what? You, but to find out real fact, all they could do is look at what we actually did in our day-to-day lives, right? So that's kind of the, the key thing. So when you put characters into this situation like this, um, where do your characters come from? So Dr. Hopesy is based on me during my residency. So she's 27. She has been in school pretty much her whole life. And, you know, as far as she's concerned, she'd just like to get a good mark, get out of here, become an emergency doctor. But for some reason, what I, what the fiction part of it is that she keeps encountering killers and trying to figure out, and basically she can't leave anybody behind. So if somebody comes to her and says, could you help me, she always says yes, and that ends up with her tangled in a lot of different problems. In this case, uh, for going to Egypt, my tour group was at the pyramids when they heard uh, 
well, an explosion, basically. So the, the ground shook, and they could hear the boom. And one of them said, what is that? And the tour guide said, oh, nothing, and just hastily brought them away. And it wasn't until later that they heard through the news that there was a bomb outside the new Egyptian museum that had uh, taken out a bus, like a, a bus with South Africans. People were injured but not killed. And for myself, I, I, I wasn't there at the time. My son was having his birthday, so I was taking a later flight, and I ended up missing that bomb entirely. I also missed the pyramids, but that's another story. <laughs> um, and when I was writing this book, I ended up rewriting the beginning to incorporate that, because obviously it's a dramatic beginning. And it does happen. It's not common, but, um, you know, terrorism can be part of the day-to-day life. So when I was meeting everyday Egyptians, I would ask them, and I said, wow, you know, there's a bomb. What do you think? And, you know, one of them said to me, well, nobody was killed. They weren't professionals, so that was good. And another one said, well, you know how you have school shootings in America? Here we have bombs. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, so there were a lot of different reactions to it, because, but, you know, to some extent it also becomes normalized because, you know, it's, it's not unheard of to have that happen. And, you know, I wanted Hope to get in there and try to save somebody's life. And in this case, when I started researching South Africa, because it was South Africans on the real bus that was affected in May 2019, I started researching treasure. Like, in my mind, I thought it would be really fun if she went on a treasure hunt instead of just people killing each other. Because, especially during the pandemic, we're kind of sick of that. And (laughs) I found the Kruger Millions. I didn't realize that there was this whole legend about Paul Kruger, one of the presidents, like, one of the first leaders of South Africa, and that he might have hidden gold that would now be worth $500 million. And I was like, wow, that would be a really interesting thing for her to go off to Egypt and happen upon that. So that was the beginning of how I started writing that novel. So when would you, during this process and you're writing this, when do you know it's time that um, you're finished? Like with such a, such a broad, there's so many things going on in the story. How do you know where to end it and, and to, to send it in to the publisher? I guess I, every book is different, of course. But in this case, I ended up cutting it short, actually. So one story that I was going to include was about a girl who was attacked on a bus. That, so that was a true case, and I was just going to fictionalize it and include it in my story. Um, she, she survived, and she's okay. I, I hope it's okay if I tell your listeners, and maybe you can just bleep this out if it's not. But in the real story, what happened was she was on a minibus. The, uh, the bus driver asked everybody else to get off, and she was, I think, maybe 13. Like She was very young. And so she was alone with the bus driver, and he said he would take her home because the bus was having mechanical problems. He couldn't do everybody, but he would take care of her. And then he took out a knife and tried to sexually assault her. And she took the knife and killed him. So obviously that was a huge case, um, and the and the hashtag Justice for Amira was trending on Twitter. Mm. So I was kind of writing and leading up to that, the entire novel, and I had written the scene where Hope comes across her and you know, coming off the bus and everything like that, and then I just stopped. Like there was, I kept skipping over that scene, and finally I realized that I didn't want to write it or read it, um, that it, I found it too tough for right now during the pandemic and everything like that. So um, that's, that scene's not in the book. So <laughs> I ended up having to rearrange the rest of the book and modify the plot and that sort of thing. But uh, afterwards, I felt good about it. You know, I, I just wanted a more lighthearted tale. You know, in this one, I'm very proud of the fact that, for example, Hope and her fiancé Tucker go out and eat shawarma, and they're walking through the night with juice dripping down their arms, and they're sipping on mango juice and pomegranate juice. And, you know, I wish I could be there with them, and I'm sure everybody else does too. So I just feel like I can bring longing and fun instead of horror. I guess you have to be very careful because you're dealing 
you know, being a doctor and you're dealing with a, a you know, a medical thriller and stuff like, stuff like that, and also with current affairs. So, um, you know, like with what happened to Amir and stuff, you have to really decide what you're going to include, right? Because with the pandemic, you have to be careful about what you do with the uh, medicine sort of thing and what's going on in the world and, and all that stuff. It, it, it must be a real difficult thing. Mm-hmm. It is a juggling act, and I felt more of a responsibility for this book set in Egypt because I was posting when I was traveling there in 2019, and one of my colleagues afterwards thanked me. She was from Egypt, and she said, thank you for showing this side of Egypt and basically for portraying the Middle East in a positive way, which we don't usually see uh, in Western media. Right. And well, I thought, I'm- oh, no, but I, I'm, I'm actually writing a thriller, so there has to be crime. Uh, and <laughs> so it has to be a balance between trying to be respectful and show the really wonderful parts about Egypt and North Africa, but also being realistic and showing some crime that did happen. Well, yeah, in America, with the media, it's got a huge, um, you know, there's their mass media, right? Uh, what were they called last week? Bulldozer by one of our guests. And it's, <laughs> it's, well, in a sense that, you know, they, they have a an idea of what, let's say, Egypt is or the Middle East, and it's presented that way in, in a thousand shows a week type thing. It just kind of gets mm-hmm. thrown out there, and we all see it, so we all get exposed to it, and so we just accept that as true. But when you go to a lot of these countries, you realize that it's not anything like that, there, or there's so much more to it. Mm-hmm. Because that would be like just saying, you know, America, you, you know, has a mass shooting every day, and then all of a sudden that's all you think about. So don't go there; you get shot. If that that would be the same kind of premise, right? So. Yes, and I think we all feel that way. Like, this will be my own ignorance. Like, I, when I went to Oregon to, to a writing conference, um, people were introducing themselves to each other. And they were saying, oh, you know, I'm from Massachusetts. Oh, I'm from Florida. Oh, my aunt is from Florida. And they were chatting away about it. And, and I was puzzled because, you know, I'm from Canada. And I thought, well, you're all American. To me, like, they would just sort of bond about they were all American. And then we would go on from there. But I, then it, it just helped me realize that the U.S. is such a vast country um, yeah. that you're looking to find kinship in different areas. So... Um, now, and now that I've traveled a bit more, too, I see it. You know, there's a lot of difference between East Coast, West Coast, you know, the heartland, North, South, um, you know, and, and that's the pleasure of traveling and meeting people. Yeah, and that has two sides to it, because it's like there's the 50 states, it's like 50 countries. They each have their own personality yes. and culture and style, and that works great. Uh, in one side because you do have such such diversity, but in the other one, it's like when times are tough, it, it, it separates people. So it kind of works both ways, um, which is unfortunate because it should be they're all the same, right? It should be a bigger picture, but, you know. Well. Yeah, we see that too in Canada because healthcare is delivered provincially just like yours would be developed, uh, be sent out um, by state, and you see the differences. You know, some provinces have more money than others. Some have better access to vaccines than others, just for example. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still waiting. (laughs) (laughs) I only have my first dose anyway. (laughs) Well, you know, let's get get on that, hey? What are you doing? (laughs) You're spending too much time writing and and not getting vaccines to me. Three vaccines for the next three days, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so you do, did you find this whole last year, year and a half, I guess I should say, of all the turmoil, like, uh, you know, more so in the U.S. with Trump and all the that sort of uh, unrest and, and Black Lives Matters and, and all the things going on. And, and it, it, of course, it goes over into Canada, but plus, plus the pandemic and things like that. Did that affect your ability to write? Yes. So for me, it started with, the, with COVID and just feeling like I really wanted to try and make sure that my hospital was as prepared as it could be and that its policies made sense. You know, so then I was talking to administration and saying, you know, we really have to cut visitors. We really need to make sure that 
people who are trying to travel for March break don't just come back and spread. Um, and that sort of thing, that sounds like common sense now, but at the time they were just like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine as long as you don't go to Italy or Spain or Iran, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, or China. And I'm like, clearly not, you know, and so now we know that the first viruses that came in Canada were from New York, for example. Um, so that took a lot of headspace, and I'm just trying to figure out medically what was going on, because, you know, nobody knew anything. It was just people trying to work on the fly. So someone would be working in ICU in Italy, and then they would send it to their friend, and then those friends would post it in a group that we were in, and we were just trying to decipher, okay, yes, use steroids, no, don't use steroids, you know, and, you know, yes, clotting is a problem, heparinize everybody, you know, so we're trying to go through that. And one of the things that I did was I wrote a petition um, just asking for PPE was, was my main thing. I wanted to make sure that we had enough because, you know, we would literally see doctors dying in Italy because they didn't have any gloves, let alone any other protective equipment. So I was like, Canada better wake up. So I wrote a petition and 61 of my colleagues signed it and it actually got over 200,000 signatures. And I was talking to the media about that um, and how we were trying to, you know, do this warlike effort to stop COVID before it started here. Because we were in a relatively luxurious position that we had less people traveling here and we could just watch it come rather than being on the first line. Um, so that took at least a month out of my life and I didn't do much of anything else. And then when it came back to, then it was kind of, then I had this really complicated book that I was trying to struggle through. <laughs> so, um, yeah, like for sure, COVID threw me off. Um, Black Lives Matter, like, it, it, heartbreaking. Um, we all felt it. And here we have black people who are disproportionately affected as well as indigenous people. So, you know, we tried to put our support there too. And for me, that meant, uh, donating money, as well as speaking yeah. out. It must be uh, disappointing, too, in a sense, for, for someone in your profession on the medical side to see people that are, you know, anti, anti-maskers or saying that masks don't do anything and, and, and all the other stuff out there about the vaccines and things like that. Um, with things like that, does that sort of get you kind of losing faith in, in people a little bit? Yes, for sure. I mean, sometimes I talk to my husband and he just says, people are terrible. <laughs> so like, oh, yeah, that's true, yeah. <laughs> I think it's kind of his way of curtailing any complaint because you can just say people are terrible and then you just have to stop and agree and then there's nowhere else to True. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, and they can be. I mean, that's what I mean. So, because you're writing stories and you're, you know, maybe I'm, I'm wrong here, but I would say that the stories have a lot of feeling and emotion and, and it, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's about relationships in a sense, right? Even though there's, you know, uh, things going on during, you know, there's, it's a thriller, mm-hmm. but, but so that's kind of, uh, you know, I'm tying this back to affecting you during, right? Yeah. So you're concentrating on the pandemic and stuff, but just the, that in itself with people kind of going, well, you know, vaccines don't do anything, and it's or it's fake, and don't wear masks, and all the stuff like that. I would think that that would be kind of a little bit depressing, and therefore, when you're trying to write your characters in in a book like this, does that affect the way you write them? Do they do they become a little darker? Do they become a little less nice? You know. Hmm. Well, I'm already not nice in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> Well, then there we go. That's, but, it kind of, um, so that makes a better book. I try to live in my own little bubble a bit. So in this case, there is no pandemic uh, in Egypt. You know, it's just an alternate universe where that's not happening. So that makes one thing easier. So they can, they can just travel and I don't have to wear masks. Um, and then the second thing would be, you know, I try to concentrate on the, the vast majority of people. You know, even at the beginning of the pandemic, I would go on Reddit and they would have things saying like 70% of Americans think we should lock down you know the, the majority of people were supporting it but you know we can easily get swayed and just look at the minority who are very vocal and very dangerous and get disheartened by them luckily um i live in the country and i have 
smart Facebook friends. So for the most part, you know, I don't, I don't get the banging of pots and pans. You know, I was thinking about that today because, you know, we live on 12 acres, so there's nobody <laughs> got banging pots and pans for me. But, um, you know, they would post on my Facebook feed, you know, like encouraging arch and that sort of thing, you know, about doctors and nurses as heroes and that sort of thing. And I just use that to keep up my spirits. You know, you can, you can look at, there's always glass half full, glass half empty. So I just try and concentrate on the good stuff because if I let myself get dragged down with the bad stuff, I wouldn't keep going. Yeah. Uh, my bla- my glass is broken, so I <laughs> you can't do. Yeah, you can't. There's no full or empty or anything like that. You know. So, so other than the, the the complex, the story parts, and the things you've got going on in the book, at the end of the book, when I read it, um, is there something else you want me to get from this book? My name is Pope, oh. and actually, uh, an English teacher pointed out to me that her last name is. See, which sounds, you know, like, so it could be that she, that she sees things clearly. Um, so sometimes I put a quote in there about hope and how it seems impossible and in some ways unbelievable, but it's still possible to make a good world. Because really, mysteries and thrillers are about justice in the end. You find the bad, the culprit, and you put them away. Dave, Dave, stop barking. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, I'll, I'll put my dog in. She feels really strongly about your broken glass. I I better not say that. Boy, I'll tell you, I'm getting into trouble. You were younger and you, you wanted to write, and you always knew you could tell stories and do all that stuff. There must have been a point um, where you thought you could actually do it. Uh, and felt brave enough because when you're writing these stories um, and you talked about the one doctor who was kind of based on, on, on you when you were in residency so um, therefore just like any of us who write you do put some of yourself into every story and so mm-hmm. therefore, therefore because we're talking feelings, relationships, emotions uh, things that happen we kind of expose ourselves when we write these stories and therefore putting it out there for everybody to see, and especially in today's world, right? You know, we've got such a, um intermixing social media world that it's easy to be judged. That's the nice mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so, It's so dangerous, you, even. Yeah, so when you expose something about yourself, the way you feel, the way you believe in something, and you put it in your story and you put it out there, that takes a lot of courage, I think. It takes a lot of courage in these days, especially um, how do you know what you can put, you can't put, and when you feel comfortable enough to put that? Like that, that has to be, uh, there has to be something that gives you that fire to do that, that ability to do that and kind of go, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm doing this. I guess when I was little, I just read books and I thought, I can do better. I knew I could do better than that. You know, um, they always say that children's books are, you know, the, the best books, and they have to be, the, you know, they have the most um, demanding audience. But if you just go through random children's books, you'll find a lot of bad ones. So I think that's what inspired me to just give it a try and say, I, you know, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring sort of thing. And then for the criticism, because that's what really hurts, Yeah. I think uh, it, that came more later. I mean, at the beginning when you were writing, um, you're just getting rejected all the time, so nobody sees it. Um, you know, like, they may not respond, or they might just say, alas, this didn't meet our needs. And it doesn't give you a lot of feedback, but you don't take it necessarily that personally. Um, it's, it's later when your stories are out in the world and you start getting some personal feedback that can really stop you. So for me, um, it was actually one of my nonfiction books that took off on Amazon. It was a collection of essays called The Most Unfeeling Doctor in the World and Other True Tales from the Emergency Room. And that one was so popular that a person wrote hate mail and emailed it to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One person, one reviewer said, I wish I could burn this book, but it's an (laughs) e-book, so I can't. (laughs) I was like, okay. You know, like, 
for me, they were kind of lighthearted essays about the emergency room. I didn't see why people were getting so upset. But um, that, that just kind of cut me off. Like, I just thought, uh, you know, I used to put my, pour my heart into fiction and then use nonfiction to just kind of decompress and just write, ha-ha, funny thing happened today, you know, with some details changed. And now I was like, man, I can't even write that without people getting really angry at me. Um, but again, the, the majority of people were just quietly happy and buying it and didn't have any problem with it. But there was a really vocal minority that um, was furious. And I talked about it with my friends, you know. I posted the hate mail on Facebook. And one of my friends was like, that's not so much hate mail as wine mail. Um, because... <laughs> The person, I think, this right at the beginning and said that, and then I had mentioned that I was busy. And he was like, how dare you be busy? Uh, you're a doctor. You're like, you should be just glad that you have a job. And I thought, but if I wrote about how I was really slow and had a lot of downtime, like, would anybody want to read about that? You know, it's, it's just so strange. I mean, I just didn't respond. But, you know, basically my friends made me laugh <laughs> about stuff. And... I got over it. And in that case, I just write, wrote different things. So I just stopped writing nonfiction for a bit. And then I would write, I write mystery, science fiction, fantasy, romance, uh, young adult. Like I write all sorts of stuff. So I just switched over until those voices faded away. And in the end, I tried to, to develop what Karen Joy Fowler calls the pachydermal skin of a writer, which is you put stuff out and then people say stuff and it just bounces off your elephant skin. Sometimes now I read reviews. And I kind of laugh. <laughs> I'm just like, whatever. <laughs> there are always haters. <laughs> yes, but you, yes. But you've won some. You've won some prestigious awards, and you also. Um, I, I want to talk about uh, just for a second, uh, writers of the future, because I'm trying to win that right now. And yes. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah, for sure. But um, so, I, I was just interested in your experiences with the content, uh, the contest, and um, uh, how long it took you to win. Yeah, that's a great story. So <laughs> my husband used to, like, well, he, when he was my boyfriend at, at the time, he would, would buy Writers of the Future, and that's how I heard about the contest. Ah. And I was like, wow, great idea. It's only open to people who've never been published before or have a limit of three professional publications before you, you know, you're too professional to, to enter it. You're not new anymore. So I was like, that, that's what I want to do. And there's no entry fees. So I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to enter. So I entered two or three times, and I got a postcard back saying thanks for your entry, and then you didn't win. And I was, I was like, offended. <laughs> and I stopped submitting. Um, and then I did submit Skin Song, which is a story about a medical student who dissects a cadaver, but her special talent is that she can, she hears noises, like she calls them skin songs, when she touches somebody's skin, and she doesn't know how that will be with a dead body. So I, I wrote that during my first year of medical school, and I was one of the winners for Writer of the Future in my last year of medical school. Um, and, when they, and when they got back to me and they called me and congratulated me, I was like, wow. And I went to the, so they fly you down to Los Angeles and you spend a week there learning about writing. And then they have a ceremony and they unveil the anthology and they pay you separately from the anthology as well as the winning. So it is totally worth submitting to as long as you don't mind the fact that it's funded by L. Ron Hubbard's estate and <laughs> Scientology. <laughs> and when I went there, <laughs> seriously, um, what, I, what I liked was, sorry, what was I going to say there? Hmm. What was what I thought was really interesting was that one of the first place winners, it was his first try that he had won first place, and then that means you're up for the grand prize as well. His wife had applied quarter after quarter and year after year and hadn't placed. <laughs> yeah. So I was looking around, and I realized, I was like, wow, the fact that I stopped applying only hurt me. It wasn't like Writers of the Future was sitting or going, hmm, I wonder what happened to Melissa. You know, they had no clue. They didn't care. And, uh, you know, they would just go through whatever thousands of entries they'd gotten that quarter. So the people I admired the most was not the gentleman who won on his first try, but the ones who had tried quarter after quarter. And, you know, it means that every um, three months you have a new story, and you just get better and better. Absolutely. And... 
I thought if that if I'm going to make a career out of writing, I can't get my nose out of joint, you know, because I feel like they're not seeing my uber talent, <laughs> right? <laughs> I have to put the work in and put up with the rejection and just keep going and going. And that was one of the things that I took away. The other thing I took away from Writers of the Future was, it was a bit embarrassing, but I was, I was really cheap and always really worried that writing would never pay the bills, right? Yeah. So um, we were across the street from a used bookstore, and I found this book called Poem Crazy. And it cost, it was still, to me, expensive, but like it was over $10 American, American because that's like at least 30% more Canadian. And you get paired with one other writer during that week. So I talked to William Brown, my, my quote-unquote twin, and I was like, you know, this book, I really want it, but I don't know if I should spend any money on it. <laughs> and he said, I think it was 16 bucks. And he was like, well, would you get $16 worth of pleasure out of it? And I said, yes. And then I bought it. And that was my other big realization was that if I was going to get anywhere with writing or really any sort of career, I was going to have to put money in and not be so afraid. Those were my big take-homes from Brothers of the Future. There you Excellent. go, Dave. Very interesting. You know. <laughs> Do you prefer writing uh, medical thrillers or uh, fantasy and science fiction? Well, it's like, it's like a mom answer. You know, I like both of them. <laughs> so <laughs> when I was doing, especially residency, but med school and residency, really, I didn't write medical thrillers at all. So people would be like, why don't you be like Michael Crichton? And I'd be like, no. <laughs> because, I, because I was working all the time. You know, it's not, it's not cute. It's not fun if you're just there 24 hours a day. Uh, it wasn't until I graduated from residency and I, even from my emergency year, like I had to finish, completely graduate before I felt free in my mind enough to look at writing about medicine for fun. So I wrote a lot of fantasy and a little bit of science fiction during those years because they were really good at escape. So, for example, I have a series of stories called The Wizard Hospital uh, stories, and in those, it's a hospital, but it's run by a wizard, and it's all magical creatures who come for help. And that was really fun for me. I'll help you, but only if you're magical. <laughs> well, that's an American hospital. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't you don't have the right insurance. Um, when you look back at uh, the work you've done, uh, is there certain books that stand out for you? Well, the Hope C series stands out because that's the one that I'm most recognized for, uh, and I enjoy it because I can put a lot of my personality and put a lot of crazy medical cases in there too, and develop that world. I guess also because it has eight books and uh, radio play um, and some short stories as well. So it has a, it's, a, it's my most developed world. Um, but I still thing? love my fantasy and science fiction too. Yeah. And I have other mystery series and everything. And I, I can't uh, say no to my nonfiction because um, I write for the Medical Post every month and that pays some bills too. So again, like I, I can't choose, but I, I can tell you my theme, because I took a course with Bob Meyer, and he said, what's your theme? And I was like, oh, I write across so many genres, this is impossible. And I ended up telling him that it was smart outsiders who win. So all of my protagonists are intelligent, and they, they're, they're never you know, the, the cheerleader or the quarterback, that's, that sort of person. They're always on the edge, but... You know, there's generally a happy ending because I, that's what I believe we all need, especially right now. I would say so. Um, <laughs> is there anything? Is there any book that you'd go back and change? I have changed a little bit the beginning of Code Blues, which is the first book in the Hope C series, because the first three books are mysteries, so their pace is slower, they're more gentle, there's a bit more romance in there, and if you see bad reviews, it's for the people who are like, well, oh, I don't know what all this is, like, all this love stuff, where's the mystery, you know? So, in that way, it's a little, a little bit tough. So, I have tried to add a little bit more tension to the beginning. Hmm. But, interesting. in the end, the nice thing is, like, 
nothing is set in stone. You know, books are mutable. Well, yeah, they're digital. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever get a, a writer's block? And, and if you do, what, how do you get out of it? So I had mentioned that when I was letting uh, criticism get to my head, that did give me a writer's block. And also, um, when my daughter was born, I was really tired, just exhausted. You know, I would, um, I remember just emptying the dishwasher and thinking, it's a good thing I'm in the dishwasher and not working or writing because this is all I'm good for. <laughs> there just weren't a lot of brain cells left. So in that case, what I did was I rewrote some fairy tales. And I said, you know, this is good. I don't have to come up with a plot. The plot's already set. <laughs> I just have to, you know, work on the character and give it a twist. And um, so some of the things I did was I wanted to retell Cinderella, so I researched the Chinese version of Cinderella so I could delve into that a bit. And I rewrote Snow White in several different ways. And... Um, some of them have been published in Enchanted Conversation more recently. So um, those are my tips. If, you are, if you're really fatigued or if other people's voices get in your head, try and switch to something else. And, uh, and also be gentle with yourself. Because I've also had writing blogs when you know, something really terrible has happened in my life. And that's not the time that you're going to be writing necessarily great work. You really need to take care of yourself as a human being. You know, the words can always come later, but you need to take care of yourself, uh, which is hard to remember both as a physician and as a writer, but is really important. And again, something that we might need to hear in the last year. Well, yeah. What would you say to a new writer or a person that wants to be published and wants to become a writer and, uh, what would you tell them the best advice is for them? I'd say welcome. It's always wonderful for people to express themselves. You know, I don't think that people should start off thinking about money and fame. For example, like some of the doctors were joking about, you know, if they were going to quit medicine, what would they do? And some of them were like, I'll just write a book and get super famous and make so much money. And I was like, oh, sweeties. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of them also joked about becoming drug dealers, and I thought, yeah, that's actually, <laughs> if you want the money, that's actually a more realistic thing. Um, so I say welcome, and just make sure that you read a lot and that books are something that you really love. So not everybody is called to literature. Like, I, I just love books. I read books every day. You know, I have books upstairs, downstairs, digitally, physical, everything. Um, but some people, you know, for them it's more music or Netflix or something. You know, and just whatever your or soap making, you know, it can be anything, but you, you should pick something that you really love. Some people write books because they hear that that's what you should be doing, but it should be something that you just adore. And if you do then you do it for the love, and you just keep going and going, getting better and better. And eventually, ideally, it's like what somebody told me about acting. You know, at first, it's, it's like getting on a bus, and the bus is so crowded. And you're just fighting, you can hardly squeeze in, and there's no seat for you, and it's so stressful. But as the bus keeps going on, and as you get better and better, you know, people get off, people get on, there's a bit more room and you find a seat for yourself. Or you kick the driver out and drive the bus <laughs> off the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Sure, there's always an option, like mass suicide <laughs> and homicide. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm writing true crime, real events. I write about murder, so <laughs> you know, I'm throwing them so, off yeah, the bus. Just, just, just immediately speed, but off a cliff. Okay, there you yeah. go. <laughs> yeah, you throw them off the bus. Or if you can't get them off fast enough, that's when you put the brick on the gas and jump out and let it go over the cliff. Then no oh, more competition. Okay. Yeah, yeah, just let them all die. Okay, yeah, got it. No more. That's true crime no. for sure. <laughs> yeah, no more writer competition there. Oh, actually, I, if I could say something to be seriously there, that is something I had to learn, like, and just total honesty. Like um, driving a bus? <laughs> no, no, I, I wish I could. No, it was that uh, I was always super envious of other writers. 
you know, like I, I would act happy if somebody said it, but I didn't feel it, you know? Right. And, it, and I realized that that was holding me back as well, that, you know, it's more a rising tide lifts all boats and you can help each other. And wasting time on envy and jealousy, that's just going to sink you in the end. So, so how do you get over that? Like how, do you, how did you get away from, from feeling that way? Hmm. Like if, if, if let's I, say I, you're, I, you're I, writing. I, I like to interview people. Like what you do. I just feel like, okay, let's talk about jealousy. And then I would file it away. And I just like, okay, all right, if I can try this and that. But I think more what I saw was just that people help each other. And that helped too. And also realizing that your audiences aren't all the same. Like my audience tends to be different. I think intelligent and not wanting just the same rehash of the same books that they've read before. Um, but the vast majority of people want to read the same books over and over again. So if you realize you're not all directly competing for the same readers and the same dollars, that you can just be friends and trade tips and stuff. It's a much easier way to live. Yeah, because my readers can't read. <laughs> <laughs> so they listen to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they just they just buy the book because that's what they're supposed to do, and they can't read. That's. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know what? I am I'm actually okay with that. If they want to buy it for decoration or just as a party and stuff, I'm like, thank you. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> buy it and burn it. I don't know. I just. Ah, oh, I'm terrible. Um, who are your inspirations then? Who 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 sort of uh, influences how you write? I always think of Christine Catherine Bush first. So she and Dean Wesley Smith teach originally in Oregon and now they're in Las Vegas. And what I love about her is that she writes in all different genres. And like so, for example, she had a a lot of success with one series, the Smokey Dalton mystery series, under the name Chris Nelscott. And so I was like, wow, uh, don't you want to just double down on Smokey and that's where you're going to go? And she said, no, I really need to write one of my sweet romances after I finish every Smokey Dalton book. So she was the first person I met who wrote widely, you know, was super good with feedback and Anyway, like just, and then I, and I admire her writing as well, especially the Smokey Dalton series. So she's one of the people who really inspires me. Another ones for mystery would be uh, Dina Stabenow, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, who writes the Kate Shugak mystery set in Alberta. Oh, I'm sorry, not Alberta, in Alaska. <laughs> she's American. It's <laughs> <laughs> further north and further west, yeah. Sorry about that, Dana. <laughs> But there are, and uh, actually for FNSF, one of the people I like is uh, Jim Drozden. The Drozden Files are a lot of fun. Right, yeah. Mysteries, but with a giant wizard. And Charlene Harris, too. So, I mean, there are just so many people who are amazing. I, you know, I just love reading. Yeah, you should read Dave Martino's book, Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it really, yeah. For yeah, sure. It, is. Yeah. <laughs> it should be it should be on the top of your list. You should have one on each floor of your house. I mean yeah, that's right, right? <laughs> one thing Chris took a picture and he had uh, he had piled up all of his books and it was taller than him. Yeah. <laughs> so I I could just do that with, with Dave Martino's books. Yeah. <laughs> you guys get all of them, make it taller than me. I'm not, I'm not that tall, so it wouldn't be that hard. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very short. So. Very short. Very short. Short, short. Yeah. short, short. Yeah. Are you five foot two, though? Cause I am. Are you okay? <laughs> five foot two and a half, and I need that half. <laughs> yeah, I, I would tell people I was five foot two and a quarter, and they would always yeah. laugh at me. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm like, it's 158 centimeters. It's an extra centimeter. <laughs> That's a great height. <laughs> it sounds so big. It does. That's true. She just converted to metric, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially in America, they go, wow, she's 158. That must be tall. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just, I just pound all of the people who leave bad reviews. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can't worry about those. So. How do people get a hold of you? So uh, you have a face, um, of course, Facebook page, but you have a website as well. And uh, 
Yeah, so my Facebook page is Melissa Yee, you and Ennis. And so it has, so Melissa Yee is a pseudonym that I use, and then also Y-U-A-N hyphen I-N-N-E-S. And I have my website where if you subscribe to my newsletter, you get a free Hope C novella. So please do that, and that's at www.myi.ninja. So that's easier to remember. And I'm also on, on Twitter, at Dr. Underscore Sassy. Well, there we go. Now, we're going to have that up on our website as well, so people that are listening can go and find you one click. And please send all of your hate mail and bad <laughs> <right there>. <laughs> <laughs> Not to the station and not to us. We, we were here, we're here for the good. And uh, Melissa loves all of that stuff. She just lives for it. Okay. So. Me and my pachydermal skin just love it. That's you know that's that's what you have to have to make it in writing. Are you gonna write for the forever now? Do you think this is something you want to do now, as far as you can go? For sure. I just told somebody I'm gonna write until I die or I lose my marbles. <laughs> well, <laughs> in, the, in the I was gonna say in the medical profession that's not gonna be long, right? I mean, it must be yeah. insane. <laughs> The timeline's getting shorter. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it goes fast. Well, uh, it's certainly been a pleasure. We've enjoyed your company uh, for the hour. And, um, uh, of course, uh, the, the new book, The Scorpion Scheme, and that's Death and Danger on the Nile, is, is, is the new book by our guest, author, Melissa Yee. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Alan, Dave. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks, guys. Find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you! If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. 